You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Two of the arguments that I think that I have presented both sides of and felt both sides of over the life of this podcast are the argument over whether a criminal deserves a second chance at life and the argument over whether mental health patients should serve their time within mental health facilities or within prisons. This episode is going to focus on both of those questions in a very different way and add in a layer of what can happen when a criminal is deported back to their home country. This episode, in research, made me feel a lot of different things, and then when I took the time to watch the documentary that included the man we're about to talk about, I felt a whole new series of things. Hopefully, this case is as interesting to you as it is to me. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 102 of Gone But Never Forgotten, How a Murderer and Cannibal Escapes Prison, the Issei Sagawa Story. Issei Sagawa was born on April 26th of 1949 in Kobe, Japan. His parents were very wealthy on account of the fact that his father, Akira Sagawa, had served as the president of Kurita Water Industries, and his grandfather had been an editor for one of Japan's oldest and largest national daily newspapers. Issei was born very prematurely, and he immediately developed enteritis, which is a disease that causes an inflammation of the small intestine. Doctors did not believe at the time of his birth that Issei would survive. He obviously did, and for his entire life, Issei suffered from a lot of health conditions, and he was incredibly fragile and small. Because of his health issues, he would develop a very introverted personality, and he became very interested over time in art and in literature. Issei said that his childhood was the absolute best time of his entire life. He said that he was blessed to be a part of a family who loved one another very much. He said that even though he was weak and small for the entirety of his life, His family loved him for who he was, and they spent a lot of time on family trips and in the great outdoors. 
Issei remembers being only in the first grade when he first experienced the desire to taste human flesh. He said that he had seen a boy's thigh at school and that that had aroused him immensely. That would be the first time that he saw another person's flesh, it would seem, and that is when his desire was awakened. A few years later, he would see a woman's thigh protruding from her dress, and he would experience that desire at an even deeper level. Issei says though he grew up in an era where sex was not something that was talked about within the family, and as such, when he experienced his first erection, he had no idea what was going on, and he even believed that he may have some kind of disease. He didn't dare to ask his parents about it, however, and as such, he would try to find ways to take care of his erection, and one of the things that he did experiment with was bestiality with the family dog. When I was researching this episode, I found this to obviously stand out, but by the end of the documentary, it actually stood out even more. We will talk more about it through the episode, but Issei also said that he experienced his first desire for cannibalism when he was only in grade one. He also would later say that he would masturbate later in life to alleviate the desire to be cannibalistic again. I found that interesting because it would seem that very early in life he developed masturbation, or some sexual gratification, as alleviation of a problem, and he continued to develop that mechanism for his entire life. In spite of all of his struggles, Issei would go on to a post-secondary education, and he attended Waco University in Tokyo, Japan. At the age of 24 in 1973, while he was a student there, Issei would follow a tall German woman home. By this point in his life, he had developed a strong infatuation with Western women because he saw them as tall, beautiful, and strong, all things that he believed he was the antithesis to. After stalking the woman a little bit, Issei believed that she actually lived in the same apartment that his grandmother had previously lived in, and he snuck into the apartment at night and found the young woman asleep. Issei's intention when breaking in was to hit her over the head with an umbrella to knock her out, and then to slice off a part of her buttock and sneak away with it so that he could eat it. However, while Issei was moving around, he bumped into the woman who woke up and started to scream and pushed Issei to the ground. Issei was caught and would be arrested and charged with attempted rape because that is what the scene appeared to be, as he had snuck into the apartment in the night and had been caught standing over the woman. Issei said that he never admitted to police or anyone else at the time what his true intentions were. Ultimately, the charges against Issei would be dropped because his father made a settlement payment to the victim, essentially go-away money for the trouble that his son had found himself in. 
At the age of 28, when he was done attending Waco University, Issei decided to move to France and pursue his PhD in literature at Sorbonne University in Paris. He said that his lifestyle changed dramatically in Paris and that he would bring home a prostitute almost every single night with the intention of shooting her, but that he had always froze up at the last minute. He also said that by this time in his life, it had gone from a desire to be a cannibal to an obligation. He knew that at some point he must kill and cannibalize someone. On June 11th of 1981, Issei would not freeze up. He had become incredibly enamored with a young classmate named Rene Hartevelt from the first moment that he had laid his eyes on her. He said that he found her so beautiful that he had drawn a photo of her so that he wouldn't be caught staring at her all the time. Issei would tell Rene that their professor wanted to have some German poetry recorded. Issei, however, had far more sinister intentions. Rene sat down and started to record herself reading the poetry, and she had her back to Issei. His intentions were to shoot her and to eat her. She had been carefully chosen because she was so exceedingly beautiful and strong and healthy. Again, all of those things were things that Issei believed that he was not, and as such, he believed that he could absorb Renee's energy if he cannibalized her. Issei was only four foot nine, and Renee was five foot ten. With her back turned to him, Issei had produced a rifle and proceeded to shoot Renee in the back of the head. He said that one moment she was talking and recording, and then she fell over onto the floor with the chair. When he realized that Renee was dead, he undressed her, put a towel under her head for blood, and proceeded to rape her lifeless body. Issei then tried to bite into Renee's right thigh and realized that his teeth were not strong enough to do it, and he grabbed a fruit knife, but was still unable to penetrate her skin. Issei would leave the apartment and go to the store where he purchased a curved meat knife, and then he returned back to his apartment. He had a plan of what parts of Renee's body he wanted and needed to eat. The documentary on Vice gets a little bit too graphic for me, and I don't want to share his thoughts and feelings as he started to cut Renee's body into pieces. You can certainly check out that interview. It is called Interview with a Cannibal, if you're interested. Issei would then cut various parts of Renee's body for him to keep, and he even stored the body parts in his refrigerator because he was afraid that the parts would spoil. There are certainly also incredibly graphic pictures from the scene as body parts were still in his fridge when he was arrested, by the police. In the end, Issei would consume most of Renee's breasts, face, buttocks, feet, thighs, and neck, either raw or cooked, 
and as I said, he stored other body parts in his refrigerator. The entire time, Issei took pictures of everything that he was doing to Renee's body. It was then that he realized that he needed to do something with the rest of Renee's remains because decomposition had started to set in. Issei would go to the store and purchase two suitcases and return home, where he painstakingly put Renee's remains inside of the suitcases. His plan was to dump the body into the water at Bois de Boulogne Park. He hailed a taxi, and when he arrived, he had not taken into account the fact that it was only 8 p.m., and because it was the summer, there were a lot of people still at the park, and it was still broad daylight outside. Issei said that he got out of the taxi and went to a secluded spot where he pushed the suitcases down a hill and into the water. Issei then would stand there and take in the beauty and the colors around him, saying that he was seeing the world in color for the first time. As the sun was setting, he was snapped back to reality, though, when he heard a man screaming below. The man asked Issei if the suitcases belonged to him, and Issei said that they did not, and he watched on as the man opened the suitcase and found the blood-stained sheet, and then watched the man start screaming, Murderer! Issei slipped away in that moment. Four days later, though, the police would be at Issei's door, and he would be arrested. Issei's father would provide a lawyer for him, and after he was held in custody for over two years, Issei was found to have been legally insane when he committed the murder, and as such, he was found unfit to stand trial by the judge that was presiding over his case. Instead, Issei was ordered by Judge Jean-Louis Bruguiere to be held indefinitely inside of a mental institution. While he was in the mental institution, Issei was visited by author Inuhiku Yamota, who would write a book that was entitled In the Fog, that was published in Japan. The book led to what you would expect. People became enthralled in the story of Issei, and he developed a dark cult following of people who wanted to know everything about him. Because of that newfound fame, though, the French public started to get disgruntled that they were footing the bill for Issei to stay in France in a mental health facility, essentially forever. That push led to Issei being deported to Japan. Issei would say that he remembers being thankful that he would finally get some treatment and some help when he was placed in the mental facility in, hell in France. And then, just like that, he was being deported, and he found himself in Japan. He said that when he arrived in Japan, he felt as though the decision had already been made, that he was sane, and that he was not someone that needed to be kept in a mental health facility. With the case against him, though, being sealed in France, there was no case, and Issei was released into the public, without receiving any help at all. 
Issei points out that his punishment was the fact that he needed to look after himself and make money and survive while everyone around him knew that he was a cannibal and a killer. He was free, and in a way that would drive just about anyone insane, but he saw that as punishment. So I have to stop here and just state the obvious. How crazy is every aspect of this story? Issei admitted to the crimes that he committed and then was listed as being legally insane. And as such, he was placed into a psychiatric ward essentially for prisoners in France. Then, they decide to deport him so that Japan can deal with their own citizen and he is in a leech on the French tax systems. Issei is then flown home and determined, in fact, to be sane. But, because he is sane and there is no guilty verdict and sentence over his head, they just open the door and let him walk. How... Surreal, I guess is the word, is all of that. It absolutely kills me that something like this can even happen. So, that begs the question, how did Issei survive? I think that he put it best himself when he said that he was forced to be vulgar, in a way. I would say that his life probably went the way that you would suspect that a life would go for most killers if they were ever released from prison. He was very solitary. Beyond his family, not too many people ever wanted to be around him. And if you knew who Issei was, you didn't want to be in his company. However, also as one can expect, he was chased down by the people that were looking to make a dollar off of his story. The first company that reached out was a magazine, and they offered him essentially a blank check to write for the magazine because they wanted to have a killer writing their articles. After that, he wrote a book and then he was approached by a company that publishes Lolita Manga. In all, Issei has his name on over 25 books and he made money by exploiting the things that he had done, exploiting the crimes that he had committed, exploiting himself and worst of all, exploiting Renee, the victim, by continuously producing photos, stories, and everything else that bastardized her memory. One of the mangas that he did even had photos that Issei had taken on the night that he killed and cannibalized Renee. In Interview with a Cannibal, Issei says that he cannot believe that that manga was ever published. But he says that the Japanese people and their minds are sick like his was before he committed the crimes. He says that they want to purchase everything that has to do with what he did and they want him to autograph all of those things all the time. I found that to be a pretty damning comment from a man who followed through on sick things that he came up with in his mind. Perhaps there is some truth to that. We certainly as a society are made up of people who long to learn about true crime, and perhaps it really is a downfall and a detriment to all of us. It seems like Issei's infatuations and Issei's lusts in life combined with a lust for women 
really probably led him down the road to where he committed the crimes that he did. That's a scary indictment on society, though, when the killer is disgusted by the fact that he had so many fans that he managed to live a full life outside of prison. One of the most awful ways that Issei and his entire story were exploited was also in a pornographic film. This was talked about also on Interview with a Cannibal, and it was disturbing. Issei essentially signed up to live in a house with a porn star for 24 hours, and the idea was that they were going to have sex three times. The caveat, though, was that Issei was only to tell the woman that he was filming with about his past transgressions after they had already had sex at least one time. Absolutely awful that people come up with ideas like that, and even more disgusting that there is a market for such a thing. All of the research for this case certainly showed humanity and all of its warts in so many ways. We have a killer, inept intercountry justice, release of a criminal, bastardization of his crimes by anyone willing to pay for it, and of course the most disgusting fact is that pictures are still around today of the remains of Renee because of all of those different outlets. The memory of that woman would certainly have been done a great justice by having Issei locked up with the key thrown away somewhere. In 2005, Issei's parents both died, and he was not allowed to attend their funeral. He said that he felt immeasurable sadness at the death of his parents, and he said that he didn't understand what the point of his life was, or why he was still alive. He also said that he couldn't understand why he could feel such sadness about the death of his parents, and yet have no sadness or guilt for what he had done to Rene. In 2013, Issei was hospitalized because of a cerebral infarction, which means that an area of his brain tissue died and caused issues because of a cessation of blood flow. It's considered to be a type of stroke, essentially, and his care was given by his younger brother or by other hired caregivers in the later stages of his life, and on his deathbed, he really, for the first time, acknowledged that he regretted the obsession that he had and that it engulfed his entire life. Issei died from complications of pneumonia on November 24th of 2022, at the age of 73, having lived for 41 years after he had taken the life of 25-year-old Rene Hartfeld. What a case. I, I don't think that I've ever finished an episode of this podcast or a series when talking about serial killers with such a feeling of dread, anger, and frustration. This one honestly irks me on so many different levels. How did this man walk free after taking a life? How is this something that was allowable back then? And even more pressing, could this still happen today? How did this case make you feel? 
do you feel for Issei at all, or are you just left feeling dread for Renee and anyone else that knew either one of them? Did money ultimately buy freedom here in the end? Did it get him home and set him free? What happened behind the scenes? Chime in on socials or over on Patreon and let me know how you're feeling. I certainly do recommend the Vice episode, Interview with a Cannibal, but it is all subtitled and it can be incredibly graphic at times, so not for the faint at heart. And with that, I think that I will leave you to go about your business again until the next episode. So, thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Thank you for supporting the show in any way that you do, and please continue to always be better. I'll see you next episode.